0: started when I asked my next-door neighbour for a shag. <laughs> <laughs> I had just come here from Greece. From Greece's second biggest city, called Thessaloniki. Or Salonika, sometimes it's called in English. I went to my next-door neighbour, his name was Hassan, he was from Egypt. We take pride in the fact that it's um, quite multicultural and it's always being quite multicultural, so... I left... There when I was 19, moved to Britain, and... And I said to him, Hi, Hassan, I'm Katerina, I live next door. Um, in Any chance of a shag, case. <laughs> so what? <laughs> this actually happened. <laughs> and thank God Hassan was actually a nice guy. Otherwise it could have turned out much worse. <laughs> the, the point of that story is that I was someone who just moved here from another country and speaking a language that's different different to my own, or different from my own, I should say. See I don't even speak of it
1: <laughs> Dr. Katarina Strani is an assistant professor at Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh. An interpreter by training she now works in cultural studies and looks at how multiple languages and cultures shape society in general and politics in particular. Katarina has done lots of interesting stuff already, but I really knew I had to have her on the podcast when I saw a YouTube video of her doing stand-up comedy about her research topic.
0: But with YouTube, things happen.
1: You'll hear more extracts like the one in the beginning throughout this episode. And don't you dare say research is boring.
0: I'll tell you a funny story first. I had an accident and I had to have a back operation back in 2008, and I remember while I was... uh on the operating table, ready to be put under the anaesthetic. The anaesthetist said, so count backwards. And I counted backwards and I still wouldn't go to sleep. And he said, he said, okay, tell me about your PhD. And I remember I said to him, if I talk to you about my PhD, you're the one who's going to go to sleep and not me.
1: So as we heard earlier, Katerina comes from Thessaloniki, a city that is famous for its plurality of languages and cultures.
0: Thessaloniki was um, Muslim, Jewish, and Christian at the same time. It was it was one of those cities that was a successful blend of these cultures back then. And the lingua franca was French at some point, um, but then uh, it, turned, it turned into Greek. There were so many languages spoken. Obviously, Turkish because it was part of the Ottoman Empire, but also Armenian, um, Sephardic, um, oh, sorry, Ladino. You know the Sephardic Jews uh, language, etc., etc. So. Unfortunately, it's not the same anymore. But you still have this era, this um, sorry, this sort of air of oh yeah, this is where cultures must have met at some point.
1: I asked Katarina whether it was that richness that sparked her interest in studying languages.
0: Really, the interest came from the summertime because near Thessaloniki, there's a place called Halkidiki, which is beautiful, um, and it's a tourist resort, and it's where many foreign tourists come and uh, we used to go there as well and as a child I always remember myself just listening to many different languages because of because of tourism.
1: Now we don't know if there were any Russian tourists back then but somehow Katarina ended up studying Russian.
0: I didn't really have a choice. I wanted to study French and German originally but my German wasn't good enough. I had uh, sort of I'm going to try to pronounce it correctly. I had the Zertifikat Deutsch als Fremdsprache, which wasn't good enough. I needed to have a higher level of German to do the course. Um, And I was told, you can either take a year out to uh, improve your German, or we do Russian ab initio, so Russian from scratch. And I said, oh, I'll take that. I mean, a lot of people tell me, oh, you're Greek, so it's very similar. It's actually not, not at all. But I... I think it's because I really enjoyed the fact that it was something completely new and I saw it as really exotic that I just immersed myself. I just jumped into it and I and I loved it. I found the history extremely interesting because it was very different from the history that I was used to learning, you know, sort of Western European history. I got to spend six months in, in Russia as a, an exchange student, which I absolutely loved. I did go to St. Petersburg for a weekend for a party, uh, as you do. <laughs> It was the one of the funniest experiences ever because um, we had friends in St. Petersburg fr- from the university and they said, why don't you come visit us? And I said, okay. We're just going to take a train to St. Petersburg. What could go wrong? Um, Sleeper train. From having to buy your sheets to sleep, you know, to, to sleep in the bunk beds and finding all sorts of things in the sheets that, you know, th- anyway... And then, you know, meeting people. And the train journey on its own was an adventure. But then St. Petersburg, we went there for the uh, Bielenochi, the White Nights Festival. It was just amazing. But what we didn't know is that the bridges in uh, St. Petersburg open at some point to let the boats go through. Um, So if you're on the wrong side of the bridge, you're sort of trapped. You can't really cross, (laughs) which is what happened to us. So we spent pretty much the whole night, white night to be fair, but still we spent the whole night um, at a street party, which does wonders for your language skills.
1: Eventually, Katarina managed to get back from Russia to Scotland, to Edinburgh.
0: I just came here to study like so many other people do. I studied French and Russian. And thoroughly enjoyed the course, but then I thought that I should diversify because I realized that the the interpreting and translation market is is quite competitive, Um, especially for French. It was quite saturated as well. You really needed to offer something a little bit different. So um, uh, I always had an interest in politics as well, and I just did politics for my MSc and then for my PhD and then went into academia. That was my diversification. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, never thought I would stay here forever But obviously fell in love with a place um, And also with a man Which is what happens usually Personal reasons uh, keep you to a place ah, You know what I like? I like a good fight <laughs> I'm interested in how people argue Take for example my husband and I Great. I'm Greek, my husband's English, and uh, last month we had to argue about something quite trivial, uh, it's like the colour of the curtains, or something like that, and uh, of course I screamed and I shouted, and I broke a vase, and I tore down the curtains in the end, and I lashed onto him with a wooden spoon, and I said, you've ruined my life! <laughs> <laughs> to which he replied, well, I'm uh, oh, sorry you feel that way. <laughs> I used my husband as myself as the sort of very basic example. Um, but I think it's true. Uh, it's not just the language you use, but it's also cultural issues in argumentation. German people argue differently from English yes, from English people. And it's, I have found it, to be honest with you, I have found it more refreshing arguing with German people because they're just very straight. They will tell you straight on. Whether they agree with you, whether they think what you're saying is nonsense, or it's 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 much more straight and more concise, and they don't really care if they offend you. They just want to. They're just looking at the sort of strategic uh, purpose of what you're trying to do, which I personally like very much. Whereas when you argue with an English, British, let's say, person, it's very different. There's a lot of embellishment. There's a lot of um, hedging. Well, you know, so I'm sorry, you feel that way. So there are differences that. I think we should very much take into account. My PhD thesis was about communication in the public sphere, so communication between citizens on politics. So I stand between languages and politics, okay? And when I talk to the languages people, they understand the whole languages and politics um, interplay and how the fact that when people argue in different languages, that is different from when they argue uh, monolingually. But when I spoke to the politics people, they just didn't get the importance of language or the importance of multilingualism in politics. So from that frustration, I just wanted to show in a very plain way, you know, non-scientific, non-academic way, that look, when we speak a different language, we become different people. And when I'm asked to argue in, not just in English, because I've been using English for quite a long time, but I don't know, in another language, in French, for example, I will not make the same arguments. I will not, uh, probably I will not be persuaded in the same way. Um, I will not phrase my arguments in the same way as I will do in another language. And I th- still don't think that we have convinced political scientists that languages or multilingualism in argumentation is uh, is important. I personally, when, it, when I talk about politics, uh, when I talk about Greek politics, I'd rather speak in Greek. Uh, but when I talk about European politics, I'd rather speak in English, which is be- because I studied in Britain, because some of the concepts I just can't work with in, in Greek. And there are other-, other people like that. I'm not alone in this. There are thousands of people who do the same. Thousands of people who move from their home country to another country to work, to study, to follow loved ones are increasing in numbers. Probably because they're going off, you know, asking natives for shacks. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of research on immigration policy and how people integrate culturally in new countries, blah, blah, blah. I'm not really interested in that. I'm interested in how new speakers integrate into political life. Yeah, rock and roll. Yeah. Politics, yeah, that's the real Ah, answer.
1: politics, that most dangerous of mine feels, especially these days. But one part of politics is societies debating issues of general interest, like in Europe. What does Katarina think about European politics? Will there ever be a European public sphere where people from all member states discuss the big issues? And in which language?
0: When it comes to a European public sphere, um, the language used, or the languages, rather, used are important. But what I think is more important is to get the interest of people to participate. So um, when you talk about a European public sphere, you... um, Imply that there's a space somewhere, virtual space probably, um, or, or virtual and physical actually, uh, space somewhere where European citizens talk about m- European matters of common interest or of generalized interest, uh, and they try to influence the European um, government, etc., etc. This presuppos- presupposition is quite um, can be quite optimistic because. Uh, Not all European citizens are interested, uh, unfortunately. There's not much information about what Europe does. There's all these different problems that a European public sphere um, has. And I know that we're getting there, but it really is a case of um, selling it better, if you like, to the European citizens that, look, this is your space, this uh, this is your opportunity to talk about things and to influence things. And once we do that then we can also think of the language issue, which I agree is is difficult, because in the end, it's a challenge, yeah.
1: Big debates increasingly happen online and on social media. Katerina is the UK coordinator of RADAR, which stands for Regulating Anti-Discrimination and Anti-Racism, an EU project which looks at hate speech, but not only on the internet.
0: Uh, it's not. It includes online communication, but it's not... Uh, just online communication it has to do with hate speech in general it started as a it's a it's an international project let's say first it has it includes nine partners from six countries so it's not just the UK Um, there's partners in the UK Italy Greece Poland the Netherlands and Finland and we are looking at hate speech and hate communication but uh, with a focus on racism and in disc- racist discrimination, really, and we see how hate speech speech is uh, manifested in um, various settings. So the media, uh, advertising, online, but also everyday communication, everyday experiences of racism. And we're trying to draw a comparative study. And in the end, we are also developing a training model. But that's um, a bit that's in the future. Uh, but what I found interesting in terms of from a linguistic point of view from that project is that there are so many um differences when it comes to attitudes to race um community relations etc in europe that uh that I hadn't envisaged before, and that's not just differences between Britain and the rest of continental Europe. It's differences between oh, yeah, no, because sometimes you know people can be simplistic, um, but uh, no, no, it's it's differences between different countries who have different experiences of multiculturalism, uh, of many communities, and also hence different attitudes to race. So that's what it's about. And hopefully there will be a paper coming out at some point. But yeah, that's that. That's what I'm dealing with now. On that note, we've had long discussions between partners on terminology for uh, ethnic minorities. Um, I think the Italian partner was saying that we shouldn't use the word race because in Italian, razza is used for animals as well so you know the, the the word for race and breed is the same thing and we should use it for humans which I think is hugely interesting because in, in English at least um, the term race yes can be controversial but it's not uh, black and white 100% offensive you know some people think it's a useful concept because it uh, it denotes uh, difference and we have to celebrate difference rather than hide it when you talk about political correctness and you know some terms meaning uh, a different thing now than they than they did in, in the past etc i think any discussion on terminology uh, what we should use what we shouldn't use etc any such discussion should be led by the minori- by the minorities themselves so by people who can be potential victims themselves and what we see um, unfortunately is that most of these discussions are being led by white middle class people um, which shouldn't be the yes which shouldn't be the case so a white middle class person shouldn't just say okay this is a terminology we use now for black people for example it's it's crazy it should be led by uh the minorities themselves whatever the whoever these uh, minorities are and then we can start to have a fruitful discussion and we can reach conclusion we can reach sorry um, solutions that are good for everyone we're having this conversation now because we've both uh, lived in societies that are um, multicultural and where community uh, relations or whatever you want to call it um, are are quite advanced. You know, there's experiences of um, of difference and there's uh, you know steps towards it. There's other societies um, in Europe, Southern Europe. You know, I can talk about Greece because that's where I'm from, where all these concepts, or this conversation would not have happened because it's. it's because it's a, not just because it's a different society but because of the different history and just uh the lack of experience in um in facing all these dilemmas so it's difficult to have a discussion like this at a european level uh the it should be um the discussions should be had at a national level first and then let's see if there's any commonalities but yeah it's it's um it's quite tricky
1: (laughs) it's tricky it's complicated is there actually something that we can do to make things better
0: absolutely there are yes there are things you can do that are not language or cultural specific there are so many art projects out there that involve um, all the arts really uh, that show how it is important to be open uh, how it is important to take the person as a person and not as a category so you know, um, I know yourself as alex and not as a german or myself as Katarina and not as a greek raising awareness about difference um and also uh, trying to make people think that difference is not something that should be feared uh, is something that we should we should encourage but there are there are initiatives uh, you know some of them are successful some of them aren't but it's uh, and i'm happy to see some of those initiatives because in the end, it's something that we can't stop. That's the thing. That's something that uh, it's a discussion that I've had with many people. Um, you know, the skeptics, when they say, well, when is this going to stop? Uh, how What is Europe becoming? And I, and I say, well, it can't stop. It's, you can't stop change. We have a French MSP for the northeast of Scotland, for God's sake. He's a new speaker. Look what, look, look what he achieved. We have Polish councillors. Multilingualism and multiculturalism in the public sphere is here to stay. And we need to foster and embrace it. You can embrace it and you can see what you can gain from it. And I wholeheartedly think that we can gain from this. I see multiculturalism as something that is enriching national cultures, uh, if, if they exist. National cultures,
1: if they exist. Does national humour exist?
0: I'm a huge fan of comedy as well. And my favourite German comedian is a guy called Henning Wen.
1: My name is Henning, the German comedy ambassador. <laughs> Not the easiest of jobs. Uh,
0: He's absolutely brilliant.
1: Well, let me get one thing straight. We Germans, we like a laugh. <laughs> no, honestly, we really do. We really do, just like the Brits. The only difference is Germans laugh once the work is done, <laughs> rather than instead of. And. Uh, <laughs> Indeed, it's the main cultural difference.
0: To be honest, I don't know any other German comedians. Uh, he's the he's the only one I know, but he's brilliant. You know, there's this stereotype that German people don't have a sense of humour, which I think is totally false.
1: Well, I'm glad we got that out of the way. You have been listening to episode 27 of Lange with Katharina Strang. You can find more information and links in the show notes over at www.langfm.audio. If you enjoy listening to my podcast, you should subscribe in iTunes or a podcast app of your choice so you don't miss future episodes. And while you're in iTunes, it would be great if you could leave a rating or a review. It really helps other people find out about the podcast. Thank you and talk to you soon on LangFM.
0: You know if the topic turns to religion for example you might get uh, you might get confused there things might get a bit tricky like I found when I went to Belgium for six months as an exchange student and I went um, to a Bible study where I stood up and I declared with pride in front of everyone that I was an orthodox cretin (laughs) (laughs) apparently The words Christian and Cretan in French sound very similar.